Welcome to the Crook in the Book podcast, where three pastor friends discuss the Bible and how it connects to life and local church ministry. I'm Luke Miller, and I'm here with my friends and co-workers, Jeremy Muncy and Andrew Balich. All right, guys, so today we're going to go back a couple weeks and be discussing Andrew's sermon from James 2, 10 through 13. So let me, uh, let me read that for us here. James 2, 10 through 13. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it, all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you will become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, Andrew, um, if you had to summarize the main point or theme of that passage, uh, what did you say or what would you say now? Yeah, I think I, I think it would be the same as, as what I said on when I preached the sermon on that Sunday was uh, that the law is all or nothing. Right. I mean, it's a it's a unity. So to say it succinctly, the law is all or nothing. And so we're either going to face judgment or we're going to be shown mercy. Uh, and I wanted to try to drive home that we're all under the law. We're all law breakers. So left to our own devices, we all face judgment. Uh, our only hope is is being shown mercy. So the law is all or nothing. Uh, so we're either going to face judgment that we deserve or the mercy uh, that we don't. What did you have to uh, wrestle with in this passage? Was there anything that was took a minute to wrap your head around? You know, so one of the things that is beautiful about James, but also challenging about James is oftentimes what he says is just extremely clear and obvious and simple, you know? And so one of the things that was, uh, I had to wrestle with is, you know, how do I, how do I bring this passage to life and make it meaningful and illustrate it and apply it in a way that gives the weight to what James is saying, even though what he's saying, I mean, there's not a whole lot of, uh, you know, explanation that needs to be uh, given when it talks about, you know, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been accountable for all of it. You know, I can say that a couple different ways, but people know what that means, you know, so how do I how do I bring that alive? So that, that was one challenge with the sermon. And then, and as far as like kind of an exegetical thing was trying to unpack what the law of liberty is, because those are seem like contradictory terms, right? We normally think law, we think restriction, not liberty. Uh, and that's true. But, but how, what is, what is he talking about when he talks about um, the law of liberty? Uh, and I think, what I tried to explain is that the law, it's the law that gives freedom in the new covenant because we are freed to be able to meet its demands. Uh, we're free to walk in obedience uh, to the commandments of the law uh, because the Holy Spirit has regenerated us and in, indwells us uh, in a way that <clears throat> uh, is different from the way that we think of law as some kind of external thing that we can't keep or we have to keep or, or don't, you know, like a, a list of do's and don'ts. So law of liberty in a exegetical level and then broader, you know, how, how do you uh, explain what seems clear in a way that's compelling? Uh, I, I thought some of the impactful. illustrations you used were great, Andrew. I, I loved uh, the illustration of when speaking of the law of liberty, you were talking about, um, you know, playing the clarinet. You know, you're not free to play the clarinet unless you 
practice and you do all of the hard things and you restrict yourself in a way so that you can have a freedom uh, that wouldn't be there otherwise. And I thought that was a good illustration. Yeah, in my original outline, I had uh, I had me playing the cello, but we actually had somebody playing the cello on stage on Sunday. So I, I switched yeah. it to the clarinet. It works either way. Yeah. You know, but, I, it, uh, why'd you go woodwind? You know? I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. It's the only other instrument I know the name of, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. And thank God, but, you know, that you're not playing it on Sunday morning and me either. I know, you know? right. But it's true. You know, there's, uh, we, we understand that when it comes to being free in an activity or a skill or something in our lives, you know, you know, freedom comes through self-discipline, self-sacrifice, saying no to certain things, saying yes to certain things. And I think that's what the law of liberty is. There's a freedom to obey God's will. Uh, that comes through submission to God's will and, uh, you know, being regenerated by and by having the Holy Spirit in us. Uh, that is not libertarian freedom. It's not just I do whatever I want. No, it's I, now I'm free to do what's best, not right. whatever, you know, and what's best is is what the Lord has has for me. Well, so. and in a sense, it is now what we want because the Lord has changed our hearts. He's given us a new heart. He's regenerated us. And- yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. It's part of the desires. Part of that regeneration is our desires are changed. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about it with the youth the Wednesday after you preached it. And uh, one thing that came to my mind was Psalm 1, uh, the whole blessed is the man passage and his delight is in the law of the Lord. Let me shut my door. Jer- Jeremy's dogs dying for those of you who, who don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, the, uh, yeah, delighting in the law of the Lord. Um yeah, we, we obey after we're regenerated out of a, a different heart. I think our, our view of God, the view of the God behind the law we were talking about as well, is fundamentally different uh, because through the gospel, we, we, we in, in the face of Christ, we come to see uh, the God, the giver of the law with a new set of, uh, of eyes. And so, yeah, but right. I love that definition, the law that gives freedom. I think that's just like short and helpful, sheds a lot of light on that. Yeah, that's the NIV translation. You know, we, we, we preach out of the ESV, and for the most part, our folks use ESV. That's what I use in my, you know, for the most part of, of prep and uh, personal devotions and the rest. But uh, there are times when another translation really captures it in a good way. And I think this yeah. is one of those NIV talking about the law that gives gives freedom. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what are some applications that come to you guys as mind. You made several in your sermon, but are there any of those you'd want to revisit or that you've maybe had conversations um, about with folks as you reflected? Uh, I can speak to that or Jeremy, do you have any that you want to highlight? I'll let you go first. I mean, I, I can think of some, but let me develop it here as, as you take it. Yeah. The lead. So one of the ones that I thought was, uh, significant in at least of the way I have to constantly remind myself of this reality. And and therefore I assume that other people struggle with the same thing, uh, is this, this idea that, uh, you know, the tension between all sin being equally damning, but at the same time, not all sin having equal consequences, you know, we don't flatline sin. There is sin and rebellion that, uh, you know, of course, all, falling short of the glory of God lands you under his wrath and an eternal punishment, you know, falling short of uh, the perfection that is his alone. 
But, uh, you know, there are things in this life that are particularly heinous and they come with particularly significant consequences. And so uh, just kind of teasing that out, the fact that all sins are major, we know that because if you break the law at one point, even just showing partiality here, according to James, you're guilty of the whole thing. But at the same time, uh, there are going, it's, it's going to go worse for you <laughs> if you do certain things. And, and the Bible talks about that, right? There's uh, the, the differentiation between sexual sin, that's a sin against an own, your own body and in other types of disobedience. There's what Jesus talks about, you know, being more tolerable in the day of judgment uh, for Sodom Tyre and, and right, Sodom and Gomorrah be, because the, the truth has not been, uh, they didn't have it as clearly revealed to them, right? They were rejecting truth, yes, but not as clear of revelation as the cities that Jesus was ministering in during his earthly ministry, you know? And so there, there's a, there's a light that is rejected. That is, uh, there's an accountability with that is more significant than, than so there's, there's earthly consequences that are different. And I, I tried to illustrate this, you know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, if you hate your brother, call him fool. If you, if you have this bitterness towards your brother in your heart, it's like committing murder. Well, yes. And that's true. And, and Jesus' point there is don't think that just because your external reality is clean that you're good because your internal reality is rotten. But what I don't think he's saying is, well, you hate your brother. You might as well go club him in the head anyway. You know what I mean? Like, no, right. there's a significant fallout to acting on those internal things that make us equally as guilty, but uh, have different repercussions. And so uh, just that teasing that out as an application that we're not, you know, all sin, none of us are out from under the pressure of the guiltiness of sin. But at the same time, uh, you need to make good choices in your life because there are different consequences in certain decisions. Well, we see that in the Old Testament law too. You know, there were certain consequences for outward sins, especially that affected the lives of other people. And, and the more it affected other people's lives, uh, the greater the consequence. And so I, I really yeah. think that goes back to the law of love. You know, at, at the end of the day, uh, the summation of, of the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, when you do things that are especially um, painful to your neighbor or especially um, dishonoring to the name of God or the reputation of God, there are greater consequences to that. Uh, and, we're, and we're seeing that even in the uh, study that we're doing on Wednesday nights through First Samuel in the life of Saul. There were certain things Saul did that were just boneheaded and shouldn't have done it. And then there were other things that Saul did, and the consequences were extreme. In fact, the kingdom was stripped away from him because of it. So, Follow-up question I would have on that. Do you guys think that reality makes any difference in the way that we go about uh, lovingly addressing sin in other Christians that we care about. So on the one hand, right, when we look at another believer, we like you said, we don't wanna we don't want to act like any sin is not serious, but we also don't want to flatline anything. So do you guys think that makes any difference in the way we we approach other believers that we care about? Absolutely. Um I, I mean I, I guess there's there's two there are two reasons I think we should confront sin in another person's life. 
number one, it's, it's going to create a serious problem. Let, let's say, for example, um, you were to find out that your brother or sister in Christ was planning on cheating on their spouse. You know, that, that's a big deal. That's going to cause serious pain in the lives of the people uh, that they care most about and in the lives of these other people um, from this other family that maybe they're wrecking. And so, yeah, it's, it's a big problem. And so you're going to go after it. Either you address it either then, or if you see another thing, I think in someone's life, uh, a big pattern, you know what I mean? Like something that's continually popping up for them. I think you address it then, even if it is a small, what we would call small sin in, in the sense that maybe it doesn't, you know, ruin an entire family or, or cause someone extreme pain. Uh, it's a pattern in their life. And um, so I, I think you clearly should address sin when it falls into one of those two camps, one of those two categories, because it's the most loving thing to do. But yeah. Yeah. All I would add is I, I think I actually had a conversation recently uh, with a church member who's dealing with family and, and, you know, the whole hierarchy or, you know, which, which allegiance is, is most significant. The the fact that this is a brother or sister in Christ or that it's my family member, you know, uh, in, in, a, in the worldly sense, natural sense. And, you know, I, I think it, this is an implication, um, so I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, but the implication of church discipline at the end is right. You are removed. The church is removing their <clears throat> uh, statement of approval of that person's profession of faith. Mm. They're saying, you know, from the, from all we can tell, there is no fruit in the life of this believer who claims to be a believer to legitimize their profession of faith. And so I think, that gives us a sense of what kind of sin we're supposed to call out. Is there a soul-destroying, self-deceiving sin? And that's to your point, Jeremy, right? Is there, is there something huge that's going to be willfully done that is destructive? Is there a pattern that is self-deceiving, right? I mean, if those, those sort of thresholds are met, then, uh, then that's the kind of sin that you confront because that's the kind of sin ultimately that if it's not repented of, you will remove, the church will remove its blessing or uh, recognition of that person's uh, profession of faith. I don't know if that makes sense. So, so I don't that makes think, sense. you know, as somebody is, you know what I mean? I, I don't know. I, I, I see them out in public and we make eye contact and they didn't greet me and they look away and, you know, go the other direction at Kroger or something. You know what I mean? Like I've done that well, to maybe you a few that's times. Not, I mean, I know, right? I and I, <laughs> I try. What I try to do is just avoid the initial <laughs> contact so that there's no quite right. No, meet, but meet uh, in the in the vegetable section, honey, in ten minutes. <laughs> there's a difference between mistakes and blowing it in a one-off and willful disobedience or patterns of disobedience. And I think it's the willful disobedience and the patterns of disobedience that are self-deceiving and soul-destroying. And those are the things that rise to the level of calling our brother and sister to account for in the loving way, like you said, uh, for their good, ultimately their Yeah, that's loving toward them. It's loving toward the Lord and his reputation, and it's loving toward the people that they're affecting. And so, yeah. Yeah, it goes back to love. You did a great job, Andrew, of, you did a great job of explaining how, of course, the law is connected, but you also hit on how all sin on kind of the flip side of that is connected as well. And I think oftentimes 
when we talk to someone, there's a temptation to, okay, there's five things we can see that they're struggling with. The temptation might be to address all five things. When in reality, the wiser thing may be to try to address whatever the most serious, the most, the root possibly of the other manifestations uh, going for that main main thing, most prominent thing may actually end up being what helps address the rest of things as, as, uh, as well. Um, yeah. I like though that, uh, on a similar note, I thought you did a great job with how, um, from our personal side, as we look at our own hearts, um, you, you referenced John Owen and the whole, uh, you can't kill one sin while tolerating, um, mm. another. I just wonder if you have any more applications or anything else you'd want to mention about about that point in particular uh i don't know how much to add other than just to reiterate and say i I think it's a helpful insight when it comes to his book john owen's book mortification of sin is about you know digging up the sin in your life and you know casting it aside killing it and i think his point is well taken at least in my own experience and the experience that i've had counseling others uh that there it is there is a there is a tendency to allow certain th- areas of your life to be lax and to go and to try to focus on one thing and it's like well if i could just get rid of this you know but it turns into that you know from greek mythology the the hydra you know you cut the head off and it comes back with two heads you know sort of thing it comes back more vicious and more difficult and and i think you know i think about that in my own life and and probably many of our listeners can uh can understand this from their own experience that when you try to suppress sin in your own power it actually becomes worse you know mm-hmm. it morphs its tentacles go different places or deeper places and you end up worse off having tried to just do it yourself than doing it the lord's way through confession and repentance and uh, the restoration that comes with those things. And so, um, I, I think that's the point, Owen's point, you know, like you can't <clears throat> have some area lust, for instance, as a man and be like, okay, I'm just going to deal with lust, but I have this greed issue over here that that's okay. I'll just let that live. Not that you don't focus on certain things and try to protect yourself from certain things. And, you know, uh, have that kind of focus and singularity when it comes to killing sin, but you, it's a total surrender, right? I can't be massaging one sin while I'm trying to kill another. Uh, it won't work. And well, I think that's true from the Bible and true from experience. Yeah. I, th- I think too, you know, when you look at sin, you look at, it's almost like, uh, you know, branches on a tree, uh, you know, and, I think sometimes there are sins that are that are closer to the trunk of the tree. Like, like for example, let, let's say your your main sin is is discontentment, and maybe that's leading you to lust and greed. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that does that make sense? And so, yeah. if you address the discontentment, then what you will be doing is you will be addressing the greed and the lust. Um, but but. At the end of the day, you're right. The solution for discontentment or any other sin that's closer to the trunk of that tree is is Christ. And you need the body of Christ to help you uh, stay connected to Christ. And so confessing your sin, repenting, 
um, having others pray for you, encourage you, um, those, those remind you of the gospel. Those are the kinds of things, at least in my life, that have led to, uh, to health. And so, yeah. yeah, and I think that's I mean, that's one of the things I tried to drive home in one of the last applications uh, in this sermon was the the fact that showing mercy to others is a manifestation of us really appreciating the mercy of God towards us in Christ. You know, it's right. Yeah, I can be short tempered, backbiting, uh, manipulative of other people. You know what I mean? Like, there's all kinds of things that I can do. But to your point, those are manifestations of what what's what's really at the root of it. The root of it is I don't appreciate the mercy that God has shown to me in Christ. Mm. And if I looked at that, if that's where I focus, then those expressions of sin will uh, be made wither. bitter to me, right? Yeah. You know, they'll, they'll be, they'll be off putting to me such that I actually walk in obedience in that way. So it's, it's the root fruit analogy, right? I mean, if Jesus is the vine and we're connected to him and we really understand that and appreciate that, then the fruit that we're going to bear is going to be good fruit. Mm. Um, and what I think our tendency is sometimes what I wanted to, to kind of drive home was our tendency is sometimes to focus on the fruit. And that is important. Like we want to make sure that that fruit is good and not right. rancid and bad. But how do you do that effectively? Uh, you don't do it by exclusively focusing on the fruit. You have to focus on uh, the, the branches the complete surrender the, yeah. to the Lord. Yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, you want to throw that fruit away, but at the same time, you want to make sure that that tree is not bearing that same fruit down the road. Yeah. Sorry, Luke. No, the uh, yeah, no. I thought you did a great job of showing not only the gospel being the answer to the the penalty of sin and the fact that we are. Uh, even through <laughs> through one mistake, which, you know, we have many more than that, uh, that we are under judgment. The answer to that is the mercy of God and the gospel, but also our just our daily practice of these things. How do we get the power? How do we produce the fruit? Mm. It's the mercy of, of God and the gospel. So that was a good, that was a good reminder. Mm. All right, switching gears, random question of the week. What have you guys been reading or listening to lately? Articles, sermon, book, what's on your nightstand or on your desk, wherever you do your reading. I can go first. Um, I'm reading a book right now by a guy that I really appreciate. And uh, in fact, I have the book right here. Uh, Jared Wilson has wrote a book called The Imperfect Disciple that I really, really enjoyed. Uh, he, he came out with a, a book recently called Friendship with the Friend of Sinners. And uh, kind of looks like looks like this here. And uh, it's just basically about having a friendship with Christ, a closeness with Christ. And uh, I've appreciated it. I'm only a few chapters in, but I'm really enjoying it. find myself underlining a fair amount, which is normally a sign that it's a good book. I would love to yeah. ask the question sometime, how do you guys do your note-taking in your book? Because I would love to see your methods, because, uh, you know, my, mine's kind of morphed over the years, but... Uh, but that's a whole nother question. Maybe, maybe our next episode. How do you take notes? <laughs> the, the book that I've been reading that I've really appreciated is something I'm going through actually with uh, my brother-in-law uh, called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You by Tony Ranke. <laughs> I think that's how you say his name. Uh, he, he actually uh, is coordinator of the uh, kind of all the online uh, yeah. distribution of 
desiring God's Is ministry, it, yep. John Piper, you know, and so uh, he's he's waiting in it regularly and often. And what I found is he, not so much that it's like uh, kind of category breaking insights, but he gives a articulation to what we know to be true, which is mm. uh, we're distracted. Our attention spans are destroyed. We're, you know, <laughs> we're way too worried about self-promotion and what other people think, you know, basically all of the things in our heart that are bad tendencies anyway, you know, uh, the smartphone and social media especially can be kind of gasoline on that fire. And so just a reminder to be careful and uh, protected and guarded when it comes to that, both for ourselves and those that we are responsible for uh, that we love. So that's been a really good, uh, good book so far. I'm about two thirds of the way, two thirds oh. of the way through it. Yeah. Tony you, Luke? He's great. Tony Ranky, real quick, this book by him, Newton on the Christian life. Hands down, one of the best books on the Christian life I've uh, ever read. It's not a biography. It's not an academic thing about John Newton. It's very, very practical. So I highly recommend that one. Uh, I have There's been a book coming out in that, in that series called William Perkins on the Christian life. So you'll want to get that one you? for sure. Uh, no, not by oh, me, by somebody else. I'm not going to read but, it. Uh, <laughs> but it'll be good. That's a great series the on the Christian yeah, life series is. for sure. Uh, I've been rereading The Fellowship of the Ring uh, because I love Lord of the Rings, and sometimes I just got to go back to that. I've also been rereading. I don't always reread books, but I am right now. Uh, rereading the <laughs> the, Bru the Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs. Yes, uh, the Little Banner of Truth edited version, uh, yeah. which I'll, I'll let the uh, the Puritan expert weigh in if he wants, but. From from my I'll own, my own meanderings, I, I think <laughs> if that's a, if you want to read a Puritan book, that's the old English, a good one to to start with. Uh, at least for me, that's one that I found easier to read than a lot of the other ones. But yeah, it's been a a real blessing, especially if you are going through a uh, just a difficult season. It's a very encouraging. Yeah, book. it's an yeah. uplifting book about the the tenderness of God. It's yeah, what a great book. For sure. Uh, the Lord of the Rings, though, you got to reread it. I, I, I find myself rereading things, too, just probably because my memory's terrible. But Yeah. yeah. Hey, I know people Did who... Did you go uh, to no. any of the... Uh, you know, recently here in Mansfield at our uh, theater, they did a re-showing of the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh. Did you... I mean, and it wasn't just the uh, theater editions. I didn't realize this. There's, like, the extended editions, and then there's, like, the director's cut, or I don't know which one. I mean, there's, like... There's like the long edition, and then there's like the even longer, you know. And there's yeah. the extended the, editions, which are far true... superior and uh, worth every minute <laughs> of the four hours it takes to watch them. Oh, I watched all of those in the last uh, in the last couple of months. So twelve hours of my life. Well, I had them in the theater. I knew a guy that went. It was like a Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night. He spent like four hours a night. At Did the he dress up like an elf so. or something? And uh, I'm not. I'm not. I cannot. I cannot say. I don't know what he's okay. I, I did not yeah. attend that, but uh, but producer Tommy and I in the background did attend uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, with the Cleveland Orchestra, where they they played while you watched a movie, and that we've, we've attended. Oh a wow, those are pretty. That sounds cool. Fantastic. It is awesome. Probably lots of people well, dressed like orcs, things like that. There or were no? actually a few people. Yeah, I know orcs I in the crowd, it. but there were definitely some uh, elves. There were some of the uh, the. Uh, uh, the ring wraiths, people dressed as ring wraiths. That was pretty cool. Yeah. But 
Well, speaking so, of, so speaking one, of the, one of these, we'll have to do. We'll have to do a live recording at the Renaissance Festival in yes. or no. uh, here in Ohio in the fall. Well, that'd <laughs> be a, great. I would just love to podcast. see Luke do a recording dressed as an orc. I think that'd be fun for the hey. people. Fun for me. <laughs> yes, and uh, producer Tommy said he believes. See, just in the background, he believes there's some photographic evidence of the ring wraith. So we we may share that in a future episode. Oh, nice! Dying to see that. Yep. Well, speaking of uh, long extended editions. Uh, we should probably wrap this up. So uh, thank you for joining us on the Crook in the Book podcast where we discuss the Bible and sometimes very nerdy things as well. Uh, this is produced by Tommy Macias, and our music is by Gregory Allen Icecoff. Join us again in a couple of weeks for another one of our 